Hi, this is Carrie Mitchum. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond with your host, Stephen Brittingham. Enjoy the show. Welcome to a Hollywood and Beyond special presentation. Hello, this is Stephen Brittingham. Welcome to Remembering Lucille Ball with Jeffrey Mark. What exactly is a Hollywood and Beyond special presentation episode? Simply put, it is an episode where my guest and I focus entirely on a specific topic, such as remembering Michael Landon, or even a building, such as the Hollywood Museum. Today, of course, the focus is on the career of a true Hollywood icon, Lucille Ball. Jeffrey Mark will share her artistic career journey in enormous detail. There will also be a special opening ending segment and a previously unheard clip between myself and Danielle Dadigan, the founder and president of the Hollywood Museum, where Danielle mentions my guest today, Jeffrey Mark, and the Lucy exhibit. There is also an unexpected emotional moment that occurs later during the interview when Jeffrey remembers the love of his life. Put on a pot of coffee or open that bottle of wine and let's start remembering Lucille Ball with Jeffrey Mark. Instant Sanka Coffee. The delicious coffee with the plus. The coffee that lets you sleep. Now brings you the Lucille Ball Desiarnez Show. I Love Lucy. Any luck? No. How would Harpo Marx be? Wonderful. Get him. Wait a minute. I didn't say I could get him. Well, then what about him? I know where he is. Oh, fine. Now, he's appearing at a luncheon here today at the hotel. And maybe we could get him to drop by. Oh, sure. Maybe we could get Princess Margaret to fly over for tea. (laughs) You never know unless you ask. Well, all right. You run and ask Harpo. I'll call Princess Margaret. Okay. And she loves me We're as happy as two can be We have our quarrels But then, oh How we love making up again Lucy kisses like no one can She's my missus and I'm her man And life is heaven, you see Cause I love Lucy, yes I love Lucy and Lucy She loves me We're as happy as two can be Sometimes we quarrel but then How we love making up again Lucy kisses like no one can 
Lucy and she loves me We're as happy as two can be Sometimes we quarrel but then <laughs> How we love making up again Lucy kisses like no one can She's my missus and I'm her man And life is heaven you see Cause I love Lucy, yes I love Lucy And Lucy loves me Hi there friends and listeners This is host Stephen Brittingham Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast. So nice to have all of you listening today. Thank you for doing exactly that, listening. You are appreciated. Extra excited about this episode, and for good reason. A person who I think so highly of, and have so much admiration and respect towards, Jeffrey Mark is my extra special guest today. His contributions to Hollywood and Beyond are absolutely amazing. Jeffrey Mark first visited Hollywood and Beyond back on Season 1 for my tribute to Michael Landon. The episode is titled, Remembering Michael Landon with Jeffrey Mark, Chris Hendry, and Judith Chapman. Three guests on separately honoring one man. Jeffrey is many things, and one of those things happens to be a Hollywood historian. Jeffrey shared Michael's biography in a storytelling manner with little interruption from me. Let me tell you, it was so enjoyable, and my thanks goes out to Jeffrey again today. For Jeffrey's second appearance, it was on an episode remembering a lady who deserves to be remembered, Gail Russell. And once again, Jeffrey did this in a storytelling manner. He's actually the only person that has taken that approach here on the show. This time around, though, this entertaining and very knowledgeable man is here for an in-depth conversation about the unforgettable Lucille Ball. And as I've mentioned, Jeffrey is a Hollywood historian, but you know what else he is? He is a Lucille Ball historian. He is the author of The Lucy Book, Her Life in Television, written with the cooperation of Lucy Arnaz and Desi Arnaz Jr. This book is a fact-filled treasure trove covering Lucy's astonishing career, full of facts and, and interesting information by Jeffrey. Jeffrey has a new update on this book, and I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say about that. Most of all, though, Jeffrey is here to share with you, the listeners, and me, the host, his impressive knowledge about Lucille Ball's career. And are you ready for this? Jeffrey and I will actually be having a conversation. (laughs) So this will be a first for us, a departure from his first two visits. It is my honor and pleasure to welcome him back to Hollywood and beyond. Jeffrey Mark, uh, welcome back to the show, sir. I don't know if we're going to have a conversation or a memorial. Good heavens, what an introduction. <laughs> well, you deserve it. And um, I'm so excited to have you back, but I'm also equally excited to actually have more interaction with you. Well, thank you. Uh, 
Miss Ball was an inspiration to, I don't know, five generations of people and performers. And uh, I'm very happy to talk about her work because it is her work for which she is remembered. And uh, I can't tell you how many people I've met through the years in the Hollywood venues at, at show business events who come over to me to tell me how much they were inspired by Miss Ball, Mr. Arnez, the show I Love Lucy, or the rest of her work um, in films, in, in radio, on television, on the stage. Uh, it's why we still care, because the work was just so excellent. Well, I appreciate you visiting me to share your information with the listeners very, very much. And I would also like to say, before we begin, thank you for your contributions to the Michael Landon tribute and also to the Gail Russell episode. Uh, without you, there would have been something missing. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. And, and it was it was fun, you know, especially the Michael Landon one, because Alison Arngrim and I have been friends for years. And for both of us to be able to uh, contribute like that about somebody who deserves to be remembered it, it seems to us who are a little bit older, who aren't you know, in our 20s today, like some of your fans might be, that these icons are becoming faded memories. And I think it's very important for us to choose the best of these people and remember them. Remember why they were famous. Remember why we felt so blessedly entertained by them. You know, I, I was, I've had this conversation with, I'm, I'm a baby boomer, with other baby boomers, especially those of us who grew up in the greater New York area. And in these days, for those of you who don't remember before cable, all cities had just broadcast on the air television. New York City, besides the major networks, also had several local stations. And they had to fill programming. Uh, they weren't on the air 24 hours a day. But they had to fill programming 16, 17, 18 hours a day. And they showed a plethora of old films, old television shows. So my generation saw Al Jolson, Eddie Cantor, Fanny Bryce, W.C. Fields, the Marx Brothers, Charlie Chaplin on a daily basis. So we were exposed to the icons and celebrities and great entertainers of our grandparents' age. Then our parents' age, we could see every night on television. And then as new things came along, Elvis, the Beatles, rock and roll, more modernized storytelling, more adult storytelling, we were right there for it. So we grew up with three or four generations of culture right in front of us every single day. And it, it, it built a platform for people like me to be able to speak so well about the histories. And then, of course, because I loved it so much, I did my own homework. And because I'm also a performer, I'm a part of it. So uh, I got a lot to say. I think you should ask some questions and I will do my best to make our friends who are listening have a good time. Hey, we're locked down or we're staying in or we're avoiding social situations. What a good time to have a great podcast to listen to. I couldn't agree with you anymore. Thank you, Jeffrey. This is going to be a lot of fun. And 
also um, a very um, informative experience hearing what you have to say about Lucille Ball. Well, I thought we would start off by actually starting with your book, The Lucy Book. I thought I would give you a chance to let the listeners know more about the book, what they could expect in the book, and this update that you have mentioned to me recently. Well, let me tell you how the book came about. There were in the 1990s and 80s and 70s, I don't know, a dozen, two dozen Books written about Miss Ball, Miss Ball and Mr. Arnez, uh, the making of the shows, but it wasn't the making of the shows. The books, and I am friends with some of the men and women who wrote these books, so I'm not condemning anybody, but the books were mostly about their personal lives, telling stories about their personal peccadilloes, about... Uh, flaws they had as people, interviewing people who didn't like them or felt they were badly treated by them. And a few of these stories were even true. A great deal of them were not. And I sat back and said, wait a minute. We don't adore Lucille Ball or admire Mr. Arnez because of what they did on a Saturday evening in 1953. That's not why we love them. We love them because of the work. And there had never really been a good book written about all of the work. So I began writing the Lucy book season by season from early live television, which would be about 1947, until Miss Ball died. Every time she was on television, at least on network television. There are local things, the book at that time was so large anyway. I couldn't do, hey, she was in your local town because she was plugging I Love Lucy and did five minutes on a tele, I I didn't do that. But all of her network appearances, her own shows, her specials, other people's shows, variety shows, talk shows, game shows, commercials. And, Steve Allen wrote a forward for it. Milton Berle wrote a blurb for the back cover. It is authorized by the estate. Uh, Lucy Arnez and Desi Arnez Jr. wrote a a kind of a note, a forward for the book. And I interviewed everybody who was still alive. Obviously, I couldn't interview the dead. uh, Who were at every single one of these things, episode by episode, done chronologically, season by season. The book did extraordinarily well for me and uh, went out of print. The company who published it went out of business. And uh, it occurred to me 20 years out now that A, there is new information that has been found since then. B, uh, I've gotten more interviews done with people. And C, Gee whiz, besides all this television stuff, Lucille Ball did almost as many radio shows. She did over 70 films. She did one Broadway show and two touring shows. Why not write a book about the entire career? So it is going to be formatted, and I'm saying going to be because I'm still working on it. It's not finished yet. Um, It's going to be called The New Lucy Book. And uh, starting from 1933-34, that season, you're going to have all of her films, all of her radio, all of her television, 
season by season. So any particular year you want to know what she was doing in her career, you'll find out. Who was there? Who wrote it? Who directed it? What was it about? What was going on backstage? And I never discuss her personal life except when her personal life affects a performance. Then I bring it in to explain why it affected her performance and how it affected her performance. But there's no gossip in this book. There's no, we do not, if you want to know about what Lucille Ball's personal life was like or Desi Arnaz's personal life was like, Miss Ball wrote an autobiography, Mr. Arnaz wrote an autobiography. Why don't you get it from the horse's mouth? The people who actually lived it. Uh, I don't need to chop up what they said about their personal lives and recycle it. And I won't print the gossip and tittle that I have been told by people through the years who, quite frankly, I think are very disloyal friends and co-workers whose lives and fortunes were made by Lucio Ball and Desiarnez, but because they felt they didn't get enough credit or enough money, they had an axe to grind. And you sit in these people's luxurious homes, hearing them tell negative stories about these people, and it's like, nope, 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 I am not printing that. Uh, and I never will. And I've been offered an enormous amount of money. I mean, I, the last one I turned down was almost half a million dollars to write what I know. It's like, that's never going to happen because it's, it's when I do lectures around the country or I do questions and answers or I go on shows like yours and people ask about their personal lives, this is the answer I give. A, why do you need to know? Why is it important? Let's discuss your personal life. Would you like to do that? Should we discuss what you've done for sex? No. Well, then why should we discuss what they did? And secondly, go into your neighborhood. So whoever is listening to this, hearing my voice right now, if you want to know about Lucille Ball and Desiarnez's personal life, go into your neighborhood, knock on any door, quickly administer a truth serum, and ask those people about their personal lives. And you will hear the exact same stories. The only difference is some of the names in Miss Ball's and Mr. Arnez's story are famous, some of them. Otherwise, there's nothing spectacular about Lucille Ball's personal life. Mr. Arnez's personal life is fascinating in that he came from a very prominent family in Cuba. And the story of how, when they lost everything because of a revolution, and how he came to this country is a fascinating story. Mr. Arnez told that story. Go read his book. It, it, we don't love these folks because of what they did personally. And uh, I think we adore them because they were literally, if you believe in God or heaven or the universe, they were gifted by some kind of greater force than we. Uh, to get that much talent, that much ambition, and to overcome circumstances in their childhoods and still land on their feet and become the best at what they could do and took that to the public, for, for which I have tremendous admiration. 
their personal lives. Quite frankly, I think mine is more interesting. <laughs> well, I have no doubt about that. Just a, a, some intuition about that. You've heard stories. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, he's heard the stories about me now, 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 now. They're all true. Uh, anyway. <laughs> well, I commend you for your approach, Jeffrey, regarding respecting Lucy's privacy and focusing more on her as an artistic individual. So my hat off to you. It's something I also believe in and strive for. So we're completely on the same page when it comes to uh, that type of approach. That's why I'm doing your show. Well, thank you, sir. And you know what, Jeffrey? I thought of something that, I don't know, perhaps you've been asked this, perhaps not, but I am very excited about this next question. When I realized just the scope of your knowledge for Lucille, it's obvious that you think so highly of her, you, en you enjoy her work, and so on and so forth. But my big question to you that I'm curious about, was there a specific moment when you first developed a fondness for Lucy? How did that all begin? <laughs> That's a good question. I, 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 it, it's, it has been asked before, but very, very rarely. Uh, it's a one-two one punch. And I'm revealing my age here, but then again, you can go on to IMDb or <laughs> Wikipedia and you find out how, although one of those has shaved 10 years off my age. And oh, I go, wow. wow. Thank you so much. That, that's nice. Uh, <laughs> the first time I was exposed to Lucille Ball as a performer, I was ill as a child. And it was April of 1960. I was a very, very small, I was an infant, not an infant, a toddler. And, uh, the very last of the hour-long Lucille Ball Desi Arnaz shows was on, featuring uh, Ernie Kovacs and Edie Adams. And who could possibly know that that toddler would eventually become friends with Edie Adams and talk to her about the episode? But I was up because I was running a fever. I was ill, and my parents let me watch the show with them. I was fascinated. Shortly thereafter, CBS began running reruns of I Love Lucy in the mornings as part of their network schedule. It was on not long after Captain Kangaroo. Uh, if you don't know who Captain Kangaroo is, you should be spanked. But probably the <laughs> most famous children's show of its time, one of the most famous in history because it ran for almost 30 years. Uh, and I would every day watch Captain Kangaroo as a little kid and watch Lucy. My mother claimed that I learned to talk because I felt that Lucy Ricardo, the character, was talking directly to me, and I'd start answering her. That is my mother's claim. I like that. I have heard this from so many people I've met through the years. Uh, when I say so many, I mean literally at this point in my life, tens of thousands of people who said there was just something about that show that made them feel comfortable. It was, I Love Lucy is almost like Oreo cookies or your favorite comfort food. One could watch I Love Lucy, be sure to laugh, watch four people who loved one another very deeply but had struggles with one another, just like our homes. Only maybe our homes weren't quite so loving. 
And that whatever the problem was, whatever the adventure, whatever the scenario, at the end of 27 minutes, there would be a happy ending. Usually a loving happy ending, often a funny happy ending. And you could lose yourself, and it became its own little universe. The way that there are trekkers out there who can um, speak Klingon, I mean, who are so into the culture of the show. I think the same thing happened with, with I Love Lucy, and I think it was the first show to do that on television. It had its own way of speaking, its own music, its own way of looking and sounding. And there are, still to this day, millions of people who are fascinated by it. And, and then, uh, you know, the show ran for six seasons, six long seasons, back when seasons were 39 episodes. The good uh, old days. Yeah, there were three seasons of hour-long versions of the show. And that is when the Arnez has decided to divorce. While the show was being produced, it was always a Desilu production. That was a name that came up for their boat, and they applied it to their production company. Through a very long process, it became a studio, an actual physical place, and it became the largest film studio in the world. Miss Ball goes on to Broadway, and of course, she's been making movies all along. Comes back with The Lucy Show for six seasons, Here's Lucy for six seasons. She's the only person who's ever done that, had three hit sitcoms. I'm counting the Lucille Ball Desi Arnaz show as part of I Love Lucy. If you don't count that, if it's a separate one, four hit sitcoms, back to back to back to back. It's never been done. That um, is very impressive. And what's more impressive is the quality of the work. There are variety shows that have run that long. Uh, Ed Sullivan, Jackie Gleason, Red Skelton, all had shows that ran a very, very long time. But they weren't based on one character. The Lucy character certainly changed through the years as Miss Ball aged, as her original writers left and new writers came in, new actors came in, new directors came in. Things have to change. Nothing stays the same. But the quality of work, it's, it's not that I'm saying that the Lucy show and Here's Lucy were as good as I Love Lucy. I Love Lucy is the original. And it was so good because of everybody. Let me tell you the story of how it came about because... It'll explain to you the quality of the personnel involved. Please do. Lucille Ball, by the late 1940s, was a huge star. That's one of the first things that some of the writers who have written about her get wrong. Oh, she's pushing 40. Her career was over. She had to go into television. No, no, no. Also, no. She had a hit radio series called My Favorite Husband that was in the top 10 or 20. She had just made two films with Bob Hope that were huge hits. She was signed for another huge hit. 
She didn't make it, but she was signed for it. And in 1950, CBS, which at that point was airing My Favorite Husband, the Jack Benny show, the George Burns and Gracie Allen show, was trying to transfer all of their shows to television. Some of the people, like Jack Benny, kept doing his radio show anyway. So did Ozzie and Harriet for several years. Did their weekly television show, but did a separate radio version. Others, like Jack Benny, I'm sorry, like uh, Burns and Allen, gave up radio to go into television. And CBS came to Miss Ball and said, we'd like to take my favorite husband and bring it to television. I must take a moment to explain the difference. A radio show in the late 1940s, post-World War II, the people who starred on it were making small fortunes. The writing had to be excellent. The sound effects had to be excellent. But there was no memorizing lines, no costuming, no makeup, no learning blocking, where to, where to walk, where to where, move over here. You sit in front of a microphone and you read a script. They rehearsed it a little bit, maybe three times, to make sure it sounded right. But it was not work intensive. The people on radio led very happy lives and had quite a bit of spare time to make movies or appear at nightclubs or raise families or go east and do a Broadway show for a while because you could broadcast from any city. In television, it was the complete obverse. You had five days to memorize a script, costume fittings. You had to learn where to walk, where to say this line and that line, camera rehearsals, lighting rehearsals, heavy, heavy, heavy makeup to look good. And television didn't pay very much. It didn't pay even half of what radio was paying. So going into television, for people like Jack Benny and Burns and Allen, it was a new challenge. For Lucille Ball, it was a pain in the neck. Why do it? Well, I'll tell you why do it. She loved the writers she had on the show. And let's mention them. Jess Oppenheimer, Bob Carroll Jr., and Madeline Pugh Martin Davis, because through the years, Madeline married a few times. She loved the premise. She loved the character she was playing. She loved the audience reactions, having a live audience right there in front of her. Was for her more beneficial than making films with no audience in front of her. She'd learned by doing stage shows and being in radio since the 30s that she really loved being in front of an audience. So she'd had, oh golly, by the time 1950 came along, 12, 13 years experience on radio appearing in front of live audiences. And she loved it. The weakest link on My Favorite Husband was the man who played her husband. Richard Denning was a very handsome, well-built, very middle America, blonde, almost Aryan kind of actor. There was no ethnicity to him at all. And although he was a good actor, he wasn't particularly funny. He was a straight man who reacted to all the crazy schemes. Her underlings, 
perhaps a bad word, but they weren't really co-stars. The other couple, the older couple who instigated the younger couple to fight, were played by Gail Gordon, who at this point, Miss Ball had worked with Gail Gordon back in the 30s. She'd known him a very long time. And B. Benaderet. B. Benaderet eventually was Blanche Morton on the Burns and Allen show. She was the voice of Betty Rubble on the Flintstones. She was Cousin Pearl on the on Beverly Hillbillies. And of course, she was the beloved star of Petticoat Junction. And Lucille Ball would have been willing to move the show to television if CBS would let Desi Arnaz play her husband instead of Richard Denny. And CBS said, absolutely not. We do not have mixed marriages. She said, mixed marriages? Yes, he's not white. In today's world, either be horribly saddened or reassured that very little has changed. We are still having battles over ethnicity. What a shame we haven't come farther in the last 60 years. But let's go back to 1950. So what the Arnezes decided to do, since Desi was touring with his big band anyway, a lot of the places he toured were in venues that no longer exist. They were called stage presentation houses, usually theaters owned by a movie studio. And each city had a premier one, meaning it was a huge movie palace. The Lowe's Theater showed the MGM movies, the Warner's, the Fox, obviously Warner Brothers and Fox, Front Century Fox films. And what they would do is charge more and there'd be a short variety show in between the showings of the films, sometimes starring the people who were in the films and sometimes not. And the Arnezes, with the help of Miss Ball's radio writers and Desi Arnez's good buddy, uh, the, the Cuban clown Pepito Perez, put together like a 25-minute routine. They wanted to prove to CBS that the folks out there who Miss Ball likes to refer to as America, as opposed to America, would accept them. And she was right. They did. They loved the chemistry. How could you not love two enormously good-looking people who deeply loved each other having fun on stage? It worked. It worked beautifully. And CBS relented and said, all right, we get it. We were wrong. You were right. Let's do a pilot. So they shot closed circuit, meaning the show was done live in front of an audience, but not broadcast on the network. It was broadcast only with inside the theater it was being done in, and then filmed. A 16 millimeter film was made of the monitor. That film, and Lucille Ball was about six months pregnant with Lucy, with, uh, Lucy Arnaz at the time. That film was taken to New York, it was sold to Philip Morris Cigarettes, and I Love Lucy was born. Uh, called I Love Lucy because the I was Desi and gave him first billing. Miss Ball was, at that time, a bigger star than he was, and they wanted to be sensitive to his feelings. The original pilot 
really only had Lucy and Ricky, Jerry the agent, and Pepito the clown doing a bit that he later did on I Love Lucy the show. There were no Mertzes yet. They had not been invented. So they, they, they retire to their home in Chatsworth, California, where Miss Ball gives birth to Lucy Arnaz. And then Desi Arnaz gets a phone call. When are you moving east? He said, what are you talking about? He said, well, what are you moving east to do a television show? Almost, almost all of television was done either in New York or Chicago, but mostly in New York. There was no link up in those days. You could not do a live television show across the country. They didn't have the technology for that. And since there was a greater population in those days east of the Mississippi River, it was more advantageous for advertisers to have the good quality of live television in the large East Coast cities, Boston, New York, Baltimore, Washington, Philadelphia, than to have it somewhere in Texas where there's six people. And they would film it the same way they did the, the pilot off of a monitor and then send those films around the country to be shown. And Desi said, no, why can't we just film the show here? And Philip Morris said, we can't do that. We have to have an audience. Lucille Ball comes alive in front of an audience. That's the show we bought, her in front of an audience. And then Desi said, well, why can't we film it in front of a live audience? Aha! It had never been done before. A sitcom had never been done that way before. Now, there are people who will say that Desi Arnaz invented this. Yes and no. The idea was indeed his. How to do that? That took about a hundred of the most talented people ever brought together for one project in the history of show business. They had a lot of problems to face. Where do you do this? What is the venue that will allow this to happen? And they decided finally to do it in an actual movie studio. Then they had to retrofit that particular soundstage to fit all the requirements for having an audience in there that's required by the federal and local governments for safety and bathrooms and things. They had, a, they had to find the right flooring. They had to find the right lighting. They had to find the right kinds of cameras. They had to find everything was new. Everything they were doing, they had to invent. And Jess Oppenheimer was the producer of the show. He was in charge of all of this. Desi helped. Lucille helped. They hired Carl Freund, who was perhaps the most celebrated cinematographer in show business history for films. He did it for scale, meaning the, the lowest amount of payment that can be done through a union for the challenge. Max Factor, a place that is very close to my heart because the Max Factor building in Hollywood is now the Hollywood Museum, of which I am a part. Uh, sent over Hal King to make everyone look as good as possible. Hal King stayed with Lucille Ball until 1973. That's how indispensable he was to making her look good. Bert French, who was a woman, by the way, was hired to do the hairstyles, and she stayed with the show the first four seasons, replaced by Irma Kuzli, who did Miss Ball's hair till she died. 
So the Arnezes were very loyal to people and people very loyal to them back. They brought in her writers from My Favorite Husband. Uh, they added two more, Bob Schiller and Bob Weisskopf, after a while. Those five people are the only people who ever wrote I Love Lucy. They got Mark Daniels to direct it for the first season, and my dear friend, William Asher, Bill, to direct several of the seasons, and he was the best director of I Love Lucy. And Bill went on to direct Dinah Shore and Shirley Temple and Bewitched and all the Beach Blanket movies. I mean, they really had wonderful, wonderful people. Dan Kahn was the editor. He invented a way to edit the three different camera angles at the same time, picking the best shots to put into the film. So we have a lot of innovation occurring here. Even with the music. They kept Desi's orchestra on payroll, so it's his musicians playing all that stuff. Elliot Daniel was a wonderful composer who composed the theme for the show and composed all of the recurring background music. Unless it had uh, a Cuban flair to it, then Desi's pianist, Marco Rizzo, composed it. Then there was a third man named Wilbur Hatch who actually conducted the orchestra. And whatever it was that Elliot Daniel and Marco didn't compose, he did. But he was given credit as the music by. Uh, that was probably a mistake because so many people think that Wilbur Hatch wrote the theme song to I Love Lucy, and he did not. Uh, later on, he did write the theme songs to the Lucy show and Here's Lucy. I'm not saying the man is untalented. He just didn't happen to do this thing. When they began writing scripts right after Little Lucy was born, they wrote in characters similar to the ones on My Favorite Husband. They called them Fred and Ethel Mertz. Fred was the name of Lucille Ball's brother. The Ethel part came because Lucille Ball and Ethel Merman were close friends. And Mertz was a family that Madeline had known. And she remembered the name. And they had trouble casting Fred and Ethel. There were any number of older movie and vaudeville and stage people who wanted to play Fred. Miss Ball had worked with all of them at one time or another on the various studios to which she was under contract. One person they weren't considering was William Frawley. Bill Frawley, unfortunately, a very talented man, and he had two major problems and he overcame both of them to eventually co-star on Ida Lucy. One is that he was a raging alcoholic. And although he was still working, I mean, literally, in a major Bob Hope film just a year before, he was getting less and less work because of his drinking. And he wasn't looking very healthy. He, he, the alcohol was having its toll with him. The other problem he had was that Mr. Frawley was just a little bit of a bigot. He didn't like Jews, he didn't like Blacks, he didn't like Latinos, which was unfortunate because his bosses on the show were a Jew and Latino. Uh, he managed to overcome both of those things. He had lunch with Desi and complained, why haven't you thought of me for this? I worked with Lucille before I know her. What do the other guys that you're considering have that I don't? 
And Desi said, it's not what they've got that you've done, it's what you do that they done. <laughs> and this is the agreement they came to. Should he be hired, the very first time he showed up drunk, meaning Mr. Frawley, he'd be written out of the episode. The second time, he would be fired and blackballed. And Bill thought about that and agreed to, he said, all right, but here's my end of this. I will do that. But every year, the New York Yankees are in the World Series. You have to travel me first class to wherever they're playing, put me up in a first class hotel, and get me tickets. The Yankees were in the World Series almost every year I Love Lucy was on the air. <laughs> That's Bill, a good deal then. <laughs> Bill Frawley, to my research, never showed up drunk once. There were times he wasn't quite sure what was going on in the script because he only read his own lines. He didn't read the whole script. So th th that sometimes caused a small problem, but his talent was worth it. So they had Fred, now they needed Ethel. Mark Daniels, the director, knew of Vivian Vance. Vivian Vance had come to prominence in New York in the early 1930s. And by 1934, not only was she fairly well known in nightclubs, but she'd become Ethel Merman's understudy in both Anything Goes and Red Hot and Blue. In fact, Miss Merman considered her to be a protege. By the early 40s, Vivian Vance was starring in Broadway shows. Unfortunately, she had a nervous breakdown and was just beginning to perform again the 12 months or so before I Love Lucy was being cast. She was appearing in a theater in La Jolla, California, just outside of San Diego, in a show called The Voice of the Turtle. And everybody associated with that show has taken credit for driving down there. Best as I can narrow it down, it was Mark Daniels, Desi Arnaz, and Jess Oppenheimer who went down there to see her. And they hired her during the intermission. No screen test, no meeting Lucille, just you're it. And uh, that brings us to the first day of rehearsal. Bill Frawley made sure he was the first person there. He wasn't going to blow this. This was a, a weekly paycheck. And folks, when I say it's a weekly paycheck, it's 39 episodes this first season, but Vivian Vance and Bill Frawley are making $250 a week apiece. Now, their salary would get raised up 10 times over the course of the series. But that first season, they weren't getting rich off of this. It was just steady work. Uh, actors are like that. We can make large amounts of money sometimes, and then a year or two can go by without a paycheck. So most actors will grab a steady thing like that. And they saw what was coming. They saw the hard work the craft going into this show. They were happy to be a part of it. So Desi was there. The writers were there. The producer was there. Miss Ball had not yet made her entrance. And Vivian Vance shows up and she kisses Desi and sees Bill sitting there and turns to Desi and says, who's the old coot? And Desi, afraid that perhaps Bill had heard it, said, oh, no, honey. That's Bill Frawley. He's going to play your husband. She said, husband? 
He could play my grandfather. <laughs> Bill Frawley did hear it. He never, I ever see. forgave her. Ever. In comes Miss Ball. She greets everybody. She greets Vivian Vance. Who are you? I'm Vivian Vance. Oh, you're here to read for something? No, I'm here to play Ethel Mertz. And Miss Ball said, you can't be Ethel Mertz. And Vivian said, why? She said, you're pretty. You have a nice figure. You have red hair like mine. You're young. You know, she was a couple of years older than, than, than Lucille was. And Vivian was very smart, very clever about show business things. She said, tell me, Miss Ball, what does Ethel Mertz look like? Oh, she's middle-aged and she's frowsy and she's overweight and she has badly bleached blonde hair with dark roots and she's unhappily married and she wears bathrobes and house dresses. She said, I can't give that to you this week. I can give it to you next week. There you go. So what they did was, and in the first episode shot where, where Lucy thinks Ricky's trying to murder her, Vivian Vance does have red hair. And she is trim and doesn't look a whole lot older than Lucille. What they did was, Vivian went to a, a person in Santa Barbara, California, who bleached her hair out badly. Uh, she instructed Hal King. She obviously had to wear makeup on her face to be seen under the hot lights and lipstick and eyebrow pencil. Other than that, she wore mascara. There were no false eyelashes. There was no heavy shading of her face. Her clothes were not made for her. They were bought at a store called Orbox, which was very famous both in New York and in Los Angeles for providing clothing for television and films and also as a nice upper middle class place to shop. But they bought everything for her, including her underwear and shoes, a size too small. And that no matter how thin Vivian Vance may have been any given week, she bulged. Um, she walked clunkily. They didn't give her nice shoes. They gave her wedgies to walk on that were too small for her. They put her in house dresses. They put scarves around her neck to emphasize a double chin. Uh, they, they, they gave her some ugly dresses to wear. Through the course of the shows, they allowed Ethel Mertz to get a, a little bit more glamorous. Towards the end, she was wearing false eyelashes. Towards the end, she was wearing clothing that really fit her properly. Because Vivian was now six, seven, eight years older, had gained some weight, and, and it, it didn't matter anymore, really. The storylines... Ethel's age didn't matter because Miss Ball had aged that many years. And the show clicked almost immediately. Now, there wasn't a whole lot of competition in the fall of 1951. Television was still embryonic. But I Love Lucy was the torchbearer for any sitcom and for quality television. I Love Lucy was not just churned out. Every show was lovingly crafted 
on the hard work and the aching backs of about 100 people. The props were superior. The furnishings were superior. The camera work was incredible. The lighting, you know, Bill Frawley was in his 60s. Desi had, unfortunately, some acne scars on his cheeks. And Desi had a small weight problem. Lucille wanted to look young and glamorous. She's supposed to be in her late 20s when the show starts. She was 40. And yet they carried all of this off. There are no bad episodes of I Love Lucy. There's not one of them that isn't funny. Obviously, when you're doing almost 200 shows, some of them are better than others. But they're all excellent. The reason why that excellence changed, because I'm asked this question almost everywhere I go. Why wasn't, or why weren't, the Lucy show and Here's Lucy as funny? Well, Jess Oppenheimer was no longer the producer. He left after the fifth season of I Love Lucy. Um, the three Bobs and Madeline left her employ after the second season of The Lucy Show. William Asher left her employ. She lost her best director. Desi Arnaz was not in The Lucy Show. He executive produced the first dozen episodes. Then he was gone. Well, you take away the writers, and you take away the best director, and you take away the two producers who made the show what it was, and you're left with Lucille Ball and Devine Vance and a bunch of strangers. It can't be the same. Uh, the Lucy show had her playing Lucy Carmichael, a widow with two children, living, sharing her home with her best friend Viv, played by Vivian Vance, and her son. And the economic problems were because Lucy Carmichael was left, left a trust fund by her late husband that was administered by a banker named Mr. Barnsdall, who wouldn't let her have any of her own money because she was inexperienced and thoughtless with her money. That was the first season of The Lucy Show, and it was excellent. The man playing Mr. Barnes doll was one of everybody's favorite character actors, Charles Lane. He couldn't remember lines on a show in front of an audience. So he was written out of a lot of episodes and when the second season started, Gail Gordon was brought in as his replacement. And it changed forever Lucille Ball's shows on television. Lucille adored Gail Gordon, adored working with him. And more and more shows were about his character, a new banker named Mr. Mooney. And it sowed seeds of discontent with Vivian because Vivian Vance lived in Connecticut and was literally commuting to Los Angeles to do the show. Right around the time Lucille and Desi divorced, Vivian had divorced her husband and had gotten remarried. And their, their home was in Connecticut because he was a book editor. I could use him now. <laughs> and Vivian said, why am I traveling 3,000 miles to say five lines when this episode is all about Mr. Mooney? I'm the co-star of the show. The third season, the writers left. So now it's all new writers who don't know the canon, who don't know how these characters interact. 
the people playing the children on the show practically didn't exist. It was as if, as if the writers didn't know there were children. And more and more of the shows were about Mr. Mooney. And Miss Ball and Miss Vance had a falling out. And if you want to read the whole story, read the book. And Miss Ball was going to walk away. Hey, I've done, you know, six seasons of I Love Lucy and three seasons of hour-long shows and three seasons of the Lucy show. You know, enough. I want to make movies. And some of her employees came to her with an idea to take the show's premise. The Lucy show was set in a fictional Westchester County town, Westchester County, New York, just northwest of New York City, called Danfield. It was one train stop off of New Rochelle where the Dick Van Dyke show was set. But I always thought it's, it's a shame they didn't think to have an episode where the two casts met and had an interaction. That would have been interesting. But they didn't do it. They moved the locale of the Lucy show to Hollywood. Vivian Vance left the show. They wrote the children out of the show. And lo and behold, Mr. Mooney finds himself in California, having been transferred, and is now her banker once again. So the shows became about a single Lucy Carmichael, who doesn't really have a best friend like Viv, who lives with her, her dates, her financial problems, and eventually she goes to work for Mr. Mooney. At that point, and for the rest of the, really Miss Ball's television career, uh, at least on a weekly basis, uh, it was about the Lucy character working for Gail Gordon's character. The trust fund was forgotten about. Vivian Vance did come back and make yearly guest visits, but the show wasn't as funny this way. It is if the show wasn't funny. There are some marvelous Lucy shows, really, truly marvelous. But now some of the shows were only good. A few were actually mediocre. Six seasons. Top of the game. Miss Ball sold Desi Lu Studios to Gulf and Western, which owned Paramount. Desi Lu and Paramount were neighbors on one block in Hollywood. And Paramount just knocked down the wall between them and took over. Side by side. She wanted to own she wanted to own her own product. She didn't want to work for anybody else. So she started Lucille Ball Productions. And they turned the Lucy show into Here's Lucy. There was, in 1968, when all of this was being put together, a lot of what we're seeing today. Marches, protests, violence, fear, anger in the world. Some of our campuses were not safe. This is, this is during the Vietnam War. This is when we were having, and we're still having, problems between races where one race doesn't like the other. It is a shame. Uh, and I say this without fear because if our listeners are prejudiced or bigots, turn, 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 go, go, go watch something else. Go listen to something else. Uh, I believe in harmony and love. I think that's how the world stays happy. 
And if you if you disagree with that, folks, I, I don't mean to insult you, but just go away. Anyway, she decided to employ her own children to keep them close by. Take them out of school, keep them where she can keep an eye on them. And here's Lucy was born. Six seasons. There are some wonderful episodes of Here's Lucy. There are some good episodes of Here's Lucy. There are some mediocre episodes of Here's Lucy. There are a few that are not very good. But they were a ratings grabber. And Miss Ball kept this up for six seasons. So now she has 23 seasons that she has been a star on television. She is still making movies all the way through. Almost all of them were hits. Um, the Long Long Trailer was a huge hit for them in the 50s, starring both Mr. Arnaz and Miss Ball. Forever Darling wasn't a big hit, but it made money. The Facts of Life with Bob Hope was a huge hit. Critics' Choice, not as big a hit, but it made money. She was in a, she did a, 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 not a cameo appearance, but then a small part of a Guide for the Married Man, which did very, very well. Yours, Mine, and Ours was a huge hit. And MAME made money. It was critically lambasted, but it made money. It was her last commercially released film. Today, it's considered a classic because they don't make films like that anymore. At the time, the critics kind of spanked her, which is a shame because it really is a good movie. Um, she may have been a little too old for it, and it was probably a little overproduced, but today it's fun to watch. Miss Ball spent the 70s doing specials. Some of them were excellent. I mean, really excellent. A couple of them were okay. One was bad. And she moved her makeup kit to NBC in 1980, supposedly hired to create comedy shows for, this, for the network. One special, it didn't work out. Miss Ball spent the 80s mostly playing game shows on television, playing backgammon at home, and uh, doing Bob Hope specials. She decided she wanted to really work again and did what I think is a wonderful TV movie about a bag lady. She lost the glamour. It was not funny. It was not the Lucy character. It was real acting. It was a movie Betty Davis would have done. It's a movie Joan Crawford would have done. It's a movie Susan Hayward would have done. Is this Stone Pillow? Yes, sir. And it was very well received. And that led to the idea that maybe Miss Ball should go back to a weekly series. It's one of those 16 things happen at the same time. Stone Pillow got excellent reviews. Miss Ball didn't really want to go back to work, but her husband, Gary Morton, wanted her to go back to work. And at that time, Aaron Spelling, who was a major, major, major television producer for ABC, had gotten his start playing a bit part on Isle of Lucy, owed ABC one more show. Uh, and he decided he wanted to do a sitcom. Well, if you're going to do a sitcom, get Lucille Ball. 
So you've got Lucille Ball. You've got the best producer on television, Aaron Spelling. You've got Gary Morton also producing, who produced Here's Lucy. He knows how her shows have to get done. She brought back two of her original writers, Bob Carroll Jr. and Madeline Pugh Martin Davis, to create this show and write it. And she got Gail Gordon to come back and co-star with her. It sounds wonderful until I tell you the premise of the show. Now, and this those, is Life with Lucy? Life with Lucy. Those, gotcha. of you, those of you who are standing up while you're listening to this, maybe you're going to want to sit down because the premise is so funny, it might knock you off your feet. And I'm already sitting down. There you go. <laughs> so this is the premise that came up for the biggest star television will ever know. She is a widow again whose husband has recently passed away. She lives in Pasadena. And she now co-owns with Gail Gordon's character a hardware store. A hardware store? A hardware store. And you know how many funny hardware store stories there are out there in Pasadena. <laughs> There's a long list. <laughs> and she moves into her children's house because her daughter is married to Gail Gordon's son. And there are two young grandchildren. She moves into the house to be closer to the grandchildren. And instead of spending money on rent or a mortgage, she can help the children out because her son-in-law is going to law school, even though he's like 35 years old. For some reason, he's going to law school. Her daughter works. We never find out where she works or what she does. And the Lucy character, who's now Lucy Barker, has two grandchildren that are probably close to the age, maybe even a little older than Miss Ball's actual grandchildren. But for the character, they're way too young. Someone that old should have teenage grandchildren. Then Gail Gordon's character finds out she's moved in and he moves in too. Are you laughing yet, people? <laughs> We're getting there. <laughs> no, you're not. You will never get there. <laughs> it isn't that Miss Ball lost her talent. You don't lose talent. But she was in her 70s. She really couldn't do the tremendous physical comedy she used to. I look at the Lucy show. So she was in her 50s during that. And marvel at the physical humor she was still able to do. In my 50s, I couldn't do that. She kept herself in great shape. She didn't gain weight. She exercised every day. She was a trooper. But by the 80s, she just couldn't. Her voice had gotten very deep. She couldn't do funny inflections in her voice anymore because it kind of flattened out like this. The writers were not the same. Her head writers were still Bob and Madeline. Other people wrote the scripts. The premise was, what did they think was funny about this? Nothing. That Pasadena is boring is an inside joke to Angelino's but not to anybody else in the rest of the country. Nobody knows. A hardware store? 
why is that a funny place to do anything? There are nine million scenarios that could have been funny, including having Lucille and Gail as a older married couple who bicker like Fred and Ethel. Well, that might have been funny. That might have worked. Or have them be best friends who scheme against other people. That might have been funny too. But what they came up with was not funny. And the show got canceled. And... And it was rather quickly, wasn't it? Yeah. A couple months? Yeah. Uh, They aired about six of them. And they shot... And that says so much right there. Although Miss Ball got paid for a full season, uh, they didn't even air all the episodes. If you want to watch them, it's all available on DVD now. All of what we're talking about, folks, I Love Lucy, the hour-long shows, the Lucy show, Here's Lucy, Life with Lucy... And almost all of the hour-long specials Miss Ball did are all available on DVD now. As are some of her radio show, because in the 60s, because running a studio and being on a weekly show wasn't enough, Miss Ball had her own radio show called Let's Talk to Lucy. Which was and that's available on DVD, the radio show? The radio show, they've put episodes of it on the various DVD releases. I don't know that the entire series has been released, but they've, they've, they've made many of them available. I sure would enjoy listening to that. Yes, yes, you would, he said choking, because Lucille was talking to peers across from her. She, she knew what questions to ask. She knew what it meant if she was talking to a woman in show business. How do you juggle being this hardworking and having children? Or how do you, if you're a comedy and dramatic actor, handle that? Or how do you handle this? Because she knew what the problems were. She wasn't a professional interviewer. She was speaking from experience. And she did it because she wanted to be Lucille Ball for a little while in the public, not just the Lucy character. It's why she kept making movies all the way through. As much as she adored the Lucy character and enjoyed being typecast as the character, it gave her you know, decades of work, steady work. It made her an icon. But she was an actor. Lucille Ball was an incredible actor. She was incredible with drama. She was incredible with comedy. She could sell a song. She could sing. Not great, but she could hold a tune. She loved doing musicals. She loved performing. There was very little she couldn't do. She could sing. She could dance. She wasn't a monologist. You wouldn't find her in a comedy club. She wasn't a comic. There are people who call her an incredible clown. I, I print that people say it. I don't necessarily agree that she was an incredible clown. An incredible clown could be given a table full of props and make us laugh for 15 minutes. Lucille Ball needed a script. If she had the script and the props and some rehearsal time, then she was a clown. But it wasn't out of thin air the way Red Skelton could do it um, or Buster Keaton could do it or Charlie Chaplin could do it. She needed a script and her scripts, when the best writers wrote for her, told her what to do. Most of you out there remember Vitamina Benjamin, the episode where she gets drunk on a health tonic. 
It's all in the script. <laughs> Lucy tilts her head. Lucy picks up the spoon. Lucy opens her eyes wide. Lucy does this. Lucy does that. The writers choreograph it for her. Now, during rehearsals, did she take what they wrote and make it 100% better and added her own stuff in? Of course she did. That's what some of the best can do, in my estimation. But she didn't invent it. She, she polished it. She took a raw diamond given her by the writers and polished it till it was so bright it almost blinded us. And she did that with constant rehearsal and hard work and her incredible God-given talent. Desi Arnaz had incredible God-given talent. He was known as a pretty boy who had introduced the conga line to this country and the conga drum and was known for his incredible sex appeal. But who knew that he could be so funny? The man <laughs> was a brilliant comedy actor. And to be a brilliant comedy actor, it means you're a brilliant actor. And when Desi was given him a chance to do dramatic things, he was wonderful. Bill Frawley and Vivian Vance were wonderful. Gail Gordon was wonderful. A little over the top because the writers wrote him that way. If you watch some of Gail's other work, he's capable of being subtle and not screaming and yelling all the time. That's what the writers wrote for his characters to do, and he did it brilliantly. I have never heard a bad word said about Gail Gordon by anybody, other than some frustrated directors who said, gee, Gail, could you hold back a little bit? He said, I can't. The script demands it. I have to do what the script says. Lucille Ball was, and this was a documented thing, more people have seen her face in history of mankind than anybody else's. More people have seen her face than have read the Bible. More people have seen her face than knows that Jesus Christ existed. So of course she was being offered, and she owned a movie studio. Anytime she wanted to make a movie, if she wanted it badly enough, she could have just made a movie. And I heard that she appeared on TV Guide more than anyone. It starts with number one. Uh, TV Guide was a local New York City publication until 1953. And in 1953, and this shows you, there's a wonderful French word, the largesse of Mr. Arnaz, his open heart. They wanted to feature Desi Arnaz Jr. and Lucille on the cover of their first national issue. And Mr. Arnaz had promised the rights to, I believe, Life magazine. Or look, I forget which magazine at the moment. Uh, magazines that are no longer published. But he wanted, he liked to help the underdog. He'd been the underdog. And he appreciated people wanting to do good work. So he put out pictures on his desk and let it be known that I'm going to go out for a few minutes. And if one of those pictures are missing off of my desk, I won't know the difference. And that became the first cover of TV Guide, Desi Jr. in Lucille's arms. Wow. Uh, you can't see her face, just her arms and the baby, the million, the $50 million baby. 
that was what they were thinking all of the ancillary publicity and little Ricky dolls and stuff would eventually bring in. Uh, the Arneses became very, very wealthy people. But they were nice people. Mr. Arnez and Miss Ball helped a lot of young people get somewhere in show business. Uh, Miss Ball, in the late 50s, even had a school on the Desi lot for talented young people. She picked pretty well Ken Berry, Carol Cook, Robert Osborne. I mean, she, she did Majel Barrett. I mean, these are all people who went on to have very large careers in show business because she helped them. Uh, Mr. Arnez also believed in helping people, in, in letting people do their jobs, in, in hiring the best people he could find, learning their jobs so he knows what they are, and then letting them do it. I never had the opportunity to meet Mr. Arnez. I think I would have liked him. Miss Ball was wonderful to me. Uh, I got to interview her in New York in the middle 80s. And uh, I got one of the That's best... That's right. You met her in person and got to interview her. I got one of the best compliments I've ever gotten. And it, it kind of floored me. I asked her, your friend Jack Benny says, which really got her attention, that people tune into sitcoms because there are running gags and running jokes and they're waiting to see which one is it going to be this week. And you can point to almost any sitcom and I can tell you what they are. I said, you stopped doing two of them that you were famous for, The Crying Jag and a noise called The Spider. That, that noise Lucy Ricardo would make when she was brought up short was in, the yes. script, was in the script called The Spider because the, 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 the noise had been one she'd made doing a commercial on her radio show where she played Little Miss Muffet and they were selling Jello or Jello pudding. And the announcer said, along came beside her and sat down a spider and Miss Ball went, and the writers remembered it. So anytime they wanted her to make that noise, the script went spider. Oh, wow. And I asked her, why did you give them up? And she looked at me. She said, young man, that is the best question about my comedy I have ever been asked. Well, I floated on that for two weeks. Uh, <laughs> hey, this is, this is 35 years ago, and I'm still floating on it. So it lasted. I don't blame you whatsoever. And her answer, by the way, was, I stopped the crying, Jag, because I'm getting too old to be yelled at by Mr. Mooney or Uncle Harry. It is not funny to make an old lady cry. It's funny you go. to make a young married cry in a funny way because every woman on some level has moments where she wants to cry, by the way her husband is treating her. And she said, the reason I don't do the spider is I didn't put them in the scripts, the writers did. And when the writers changed, they didn't take it with them. If they would have written it in, I would have done it. But they didn't, so I didn't. 
And the other part of that answer was, I didn't do it well just a moment ago. To do the spider well, you gotta go up and down in your voice a lot. And her voice, as I said, it deepened and kind of leveled. She couldn't make the noise funny anymore. That's probably the other reason why she wasn't doing it. And she was aware of that. Yes. This ball I was very self-aware. She had to be very self-aware. To do what she did consistently, to look as well as she did consistently, she had to be very self-aware of how she looked. And how long was your conversation with Lucille? Well, it was supposed to be very short. It ended up being 25 minutes, uh, which, which kind of perturbed Gary. But she was enjoying talking with me, so we, we, we had a good time together. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I could just imagine how you must have been feeling moments before, <laughs> knowing that you're getting ready to meet Lucille Ball. I couldn't breathe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to put myself in your shoes, Jeffrey, and I think that's the reaction I would have like, well, oh, wow, you know, I can't breathe. I was in my 20s. Um, I, 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 will, I will tell a tale on myself. I began in show business at the age of 15, where I was hired to be in a show uh, at a dinner theater outside of Washington, D.C. I wasn't playing a kid. I was playing an adult. The the director who hired me did not know I was only 15. Uh, My talent won out. I made my first film at 16. I was off-Broadway at 17. I was working at the Playboy Club at 18. I'm an ambitious little son of a gun. But... I had my own issues with alcohol and drugs. And in my 20s, my work in show business deflated in direct proportion to how much my drinking and drug using inflated. Really and truly, in the 80s, the only show business work I did was interviewing Ms. Ball and raising money Dr. Matilda Krim came to me. She felt that although she couldn't cure AIDS, she could treat it so people could keep living and living good lives. She needed money. I put on shows for her in New York City, long, day-long variety shows, live, that raised a lot of money for her. She took that money to Elizabeth Taylor, and they started AMFAR. Uh, Dr. Krim died last year in her 90s. Amthar has $1.6 billion now in assets to cure things. Wow. And I had I had a, a hand in starting that. Other than that, I was just getting drunk and getting stoned. Um, when I got sober in 1989, so I'm, I'm 31 years clean and sober as we re- record this, um, I wanted my career back, and, I, and I've been very lucky. I Really, I'm the luckiest son of a gun on the planet um, because I well, – I'm walked, so happy for you. Well, thank you. I walked into my first day of high school, which in those days was 10th grade, two weeks shy of my 14th birthday, and in my last class of the day, met the person I would be in love with for the rest of my life. Um, we never lived together because – of the mores of the 1970s, but we were together 
until a year ago last January. Uh, how lucky is that to walk in 13, almost 14, and meet the one person you're going to be in love with the rest of your life? Two years later, I was getting paid to be an actor and a singer and a dancer. And despite my alcoholism and drug addiction, show business took me back when I got sober. And I have an Emmy Award and a Grammy nomination and a very long career to show for all of that. I'm the luckiest guy on the planet. Hey, I, I've had my share of sorrows and heartaches. Believe me, folks. Uh, I, don't leave, I don't lead a charmed life, but I lead a blessed life. I've known success and I have known real, deep, soulmate love. And uh, he produced for us two wonderful children, our son and daughter, Julia and Matt, and two grandsons, Ben and Abe, and uh, that makes me very happy. Wow, that was absolutely beautiful, Jeffrey. I'm very touched by what you shared. Thank you. And my heart goes out to you over the loss of your loved one. But I, I say to you now, I hope those good memories just stay with you always and bring you much comfort. Oh, uh, his name was Joel Kabik, just for the record. And uh, he, he, a part of him is always here with me. Um, he's not here physically anymore, but we were so much a part of one another that even though he couldn't deal with publicly loving me, so we kept our relationship a secret. Uh, it doesn't make it any less brilliant, any less loving, any less satisfying. And we were so close. Uh, my daughter says she's not sure where he stops and I start. We're so much the same person. Again, I've, I've just been very blessed. That, that is a blessing. How many people search that their whole life and, and actually don't find it? I walked, literally walked into it. The last class of my first day of high school was a class in musical theater. I've never heard of that. I never heard of it before. I've never heard of it since. And the guy who ran it, ran all the choral music for the shows in school and the chorus and, and directed the musical parts of the musicals we did. And he paired us up into twos and twos to work on musical comedy songs. And looking back, because he was a gay man, I think he put us together. I think he, like, he saw these two should get to know each other. And it was instantaneous. It was... That's all it took. The first minute of conversation, I knew. I just knew. And... I believe your, your, your listeners, and I hope I'm not offending anybody out there, folks. I'm just telling my story. I'm not asking you to believe in anything or not believe in anything. I'm just telling you my truth. I believe somehow we exchanged DNA right there and then. Uh, we couldn't live without each other. Uh, we had lots of troubles because of that. <laughs> um, I did not, he got married, uh, that's how we have children. I did not interfere in his marriages. I did not cause them to not succeed. I certainly saw other people because we couldn't live together. But he owned my heart, I owned his, we shared a soul, and uh, I'm, I'm satisfied. You can play the game of what if all you want. It doesn't change or fix anything because you can't go backwards and fix anything. 
but if I have to be my age and not have him, uh, gee, how much easier would be quarantine be if he was here with me, for instance? But that's not how it is. No so I am quarantined completely alone, no human contact, uh, because that's what we have to do right now. And it will change again, and things will get better, because I have hope. And I do as well for brighter days. And I miss him. I cannot tell you how much I miss him without crying. I miss him terribly. Well, I can hear it in your voice. Yeah, I'm trying really hard not to break down. Um, wow. A year and a half in, it doesn't get better. The pain doesn't go away. I just get used to it. So um, there, there is something, I think, in some people. We'll, we'll, we'll take this back to the Arnezes. There is something in some people, a survivor's instinct, a, uh, a, a burning ambition to take whatever God gave you and do something with it that sets us apart. I think Miss Ball, Mr. Arnez were survivors. They lived through some horrific things. They became, I mean, there is no bigger television star than Lucille Ball. There still isn't a bigger television producer than Desi Arnez. They took what God gave them and did the absolute most with it, despite whatever problems they had. And we admire them, appreciate them, our lives are enriched by them, despite whatever problems they had, because they had the ambition and the courage to reach for it. Well said. And they never surrendered. You talk about that fighting spirit. I know exactly what you're talking about, Jeffrey, because that's how my grandmother could be described, who raised me a loving, caring, kind woman. But let me tell you, with all the heartaches and loss she experienced over the years, she had that uh, in her as well that just kept her going. Nothing was going to stop her. We only get to circle the sun so many days. Our lives are not infinite. There is no forever on this planet. I, I've never understood, every, I, I believe that every single human being is given talents. Some are more obvious than others. If someone is spectacularly good looking or is blessed physically or is- it, Might give them a leg up, so to speak. Yeah, or is a genius or has theatrical talent or they're a great cook or hospitality is their forte or they there is a craft at which they're very good or they're magnificent parents or they're magnificent teachers or whatever it is take what god gives you and do the most you can with it i i every day i ask for the opportunity to be a blessing to somebody i don't know who this somebody is but even sequestered in my home how can I be a blessing to somebody? Well, you uh, succeeded in blessing me today. Oh, thank you so much. Because, because what you just had to say, and then the love that you shared, 
for your partner, for the person that you really cared about. I mean, it just really moved me, touched me. And, you know, you've like, a, it's like you've kind of like um, set in, uh, some more batteries in me to, to, re, to remember to, to, to keep on going and, and stay blessed and focused on, on the positive. So thank you for that. The only, you're welcome, sir. The only failure in life is not trying. Trying does not always lead to success, but it leads to learning and it leads to getting better as a person and at what you do. And you take all that learning and apply it back again and try again. And voila, a success. The only failure is not trying. The Arneses always tried. Always tried. Well, may I ask you a question, Jeffrey? And this could be true, false, or I'll give you a C. I don't know (laughs) as a safety net. But is it true as far as you know that Lucille Ball auditioned for Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind? This is the story. She was working for RKO at the time under contract and and getting somewhere. She She was doing some nice films she wasn't maybe the star of the film, but she was one of the stars of the film by this point. And she wanted to be in Gone with the Wind. And David O'Selznick's office, I believe, was in Culver City at the time. She'd eventually own it, by the way. And uh, it, was, it was part of RKO eventually. And... Uh, she was a good businesswoman, wasn't she? Uh, no, Desi Arnaz was a great businessman. Lucille Ball he was, was a an actor. Businessman. Gotcha. Got caught in a rainstorm. You know, it doesn't rain all that much in California, in Southern California. But she got caught. A lot of people out here don't own umbrellas. And she was wet. And they allowed her to dry off in Selznick's office because he was running late. And he came in and she did her audition and realized that she was still on her knees dripping wet in front of the fire. That's how she auditioned for Gone with the Wind. Wow. Now, was she ever taken seriously? No. Was she given a screen test for Gone with the Wind? No. I see. No. Uh, she had, look, there were a lot of people who did screen tests or did auditions because it fed the publicity machine that we can't find anybody. They knew fairly early on about Vivian Lee. Uh, but they kept it going because it was wonderful publicity for a very expensive film. Because MGM had two very expensive films that year, Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz. And they had to make sure that these things paid off. But the story is true that she at least did a scene from the book or from the script, I don't know, dripping wet in his office. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that, Jeffrey. And, and you know, there is a show that, wow, I still love to this day. Just thinking about it uh, brings a smile to my face. A lot of physical humor as well. And I enjoyed the characters. And I love the ongoing theme of always thinking that someone was doing something that they weren't. Um, you know, I'll give an example, Mr. Farley portrayed by Don Knotts. And of course I'm talking about three's company coming to over to 
to, to Jack and the girl's apartment to fix a, uh, uh, something in the, in, the, in the bathroom. And when he walks up to the door, it's Chrissy and Jack trying to put up a shower curtain. But it just sounds like something else is happening, if you can imagine. Yes. <laughs> and of course, Don Knotts reactions to everything. But what I'm leading to is, um, I recall, I believe it was a two-part retrospective on Three's Company by Lucille Ball. I just wanted to know if you had anything to say about uh, that event by chance. They decided, ABC did, to do a retrospective on Three's Company. Actually, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz were the first ones who did this kind of thing, where they would save money. If you can do a show that's mostly clips of old shows, either either it's clips only, or the characters reminisce and the screen goes foggy and you hear this music and it goes back to a, a, you know episodes that they'd done in the past. And they decided, because Lucille Ball was an admirer, not of the show itself, but of John Ritter's, she really admired his way with physical comedy. And John was a good-looking guy. and you know, I'm, I'm sure she, she found him cute and talented. So they, they did this retrospective uh, in the normal... Three's company time slot, where Lucille uh, narrates, kind of, sort of, on the Three's company set, she does the lead-ins to the uh, various episodes, so that the cast does not appear, except in the retrospective parts. Uh, John Ritter comes in at the end to thank her for being there, and she goes, oh, John, kiss me. And then... uh, (laughs) The second episode of Life with Lucy, John Ritter paid her back and was a guest star. <laughs> Lucille Ball, by the time this was done, I think they didn't know what to do with her. Her name guaranteed ratings. Her name guaranteed the Lucy fans would tune into almost anything as long as her name was there. That's why Bob Hope used her so much on his specials. That that, and they were good friends. So ABC knew that if they're going to do a retrospective about comedy, a comedy show, you know, get Lucille Ball in. And Who better? Obviously, she they either met her price or she lowered her price to do it because she loved John Ritter. Uh, Miss Ball did not look great particularly on that episode. Whoever did her makeup didn't do her right. There was a problem with Miss Ball. Once her original makeup artist left her, he had an expertise with her. Miss Ball's skin was very thin. I don't mean she got hurt easily. I mean, it was literally thin. Uh, She bruised easily. She could not get a facelift. So the best that they could do Uh, Most people are not aware of this. Starting in the first season of the hour-long I Love Lucy shows, when her hair got cut short, when she lost that bun in the back, those were wigs. Irma Kuzli would take her hair, the hair around her hairline of her face. Some of it she would pin curl. Some of it she would braid and pin curl all the way around. 
it's like giving a temporary facelift. It pulls all the skin around the eyes back. And then if you do it at the bottom of the, the skull, it pulls some of the chin line back. That would get uh, taped, like medical tape, and then a wig cap over that, leaving about a quarter of an inch, half an inch of her own hairline showing with a wig sitting on top of that. So most people had no idea they were wigs. That was the most they could do for her other than adding layers of makeup. By the time the 80s came along, this is just a personal opinion, Miss Ball was getting a kind of raccoonish look. Too much eyeliner, too much dark uh, eyeshadow. Her eyebrows were being painted halfway up her forehead. She was a beautiful woman who was getting older, but still beautiful. I prefer looking at photos of Miss Ball at that period of time when she's not all made up. Does she look older? Yes. Are we aware that her great big eyes had shrunken down some from age? Yeah. Does she have lines on her face? Yeah. But she's still pretty. And she looks natural. There was an unnatural look to her. Steve Allen and I discussed this one day. Steve was a friend of mine. And he said, there's something about female actors. They find a point in their life where they think they look their best and free themselves at that point. And he said, most women, and he kind of included his own wife, Jane Meadows, in this, at some point begin to look like drag queens. Too much makeup. The wigs are too fussy. The, the clothing is too over the top. They're not naturally pretty anymore. It's painted on for them. And I, I'm afraid that happened with Miss Ball. Because it's not that she stopped being pretty. She was still pretty. It's that she wanted to preserve the look. Because we were watching her shows morning, noon, and night on reruns. And, which were at that point, some of them 20 years old. Hey, yes. when you get started in television till you're 40, and you're now in your 60s or into your 70s, how can anyone possibly be expected to look exactly the same? And she felt she was in competition with a younger version of herself. But she never lost being beautiful. She was always beautiful. Always she watched beautiful. Her weight. Yes. She watched her weight. She never got fat. Yeah, she gained and lost weight sometimes as she got older. But what made her beautiful was always there. And I feel she was ill-served by the glamour makeup. It might have looked good on her when she was in her 20s and 30s in, a, in an MGM and RKO uh, in a photographic studio. It wasn't necessary at that point. Very interesting. Thank you, Jeffrey, for sharing that insight on on Lucille aging. And I really um, agree with it, all that you said, and thank you for that. And I thought a uh, fitting conclusion to our conversation today actually coincides with the conclusion near the end of her life. 
And you've mentioned Bob Hope several times, and I'm glad that you did because he is a part of this. And I'm going back to, as far as I know, what may have been her last appearance one month before her death. Yes, at the Academy Awards. And I just thought I would bring up a moment that just kind of stirs my heart when I think about it. And that is that she and Bob Hope were presenters and they both received a standing ovation. And that just, you know, after all those years of hard work, that just had to be such a meaningful moment for Lucille. It was a very, I'm trying to find a good word rather than a whole sentence. Mixed emotions is the best thing I can come up with. They were presenting young Hollywood, a bunch of young up-and-coming actors who were doing well, kind of passing the torch forward. They got a standing ovation because they're Bob Hope and Lucille Ball. They're probably the two biggest stars in show business at the moment. Miss Ball, everyone knew that she'd lost Desi Arnaz. Everybody knew that life with Lucy had been a failure. Most folks knew that she'd had a stroke, that she'd had some health problems, that she was there wearing a beautiful dress that was too heavy for her was very conflicting emotions for her. She'd reached a point in her life, the doctors told her she couldn't smoke, she couldn't drink, she really couldn't do any of the physical comedy anymore. She was having dental problems, it was hard for her to talk well and, and clearly because of the stroke and because of the dental problems. She felt, from what I've heard, that she'd lost a lot of what made her happy in life. Michael Stern is her number one official fan by her. And they were friends. And Michael went with her to the Academy Awards. He said it was an amazing thing to be backstage with her. We didn't have anything around our necks. At show business functions, if you're talent or you're supposed to be backstage or a VIP, you wear a thing around your neck with a plastic badge. They had no badges. They didn't need them. She was Lucille Ball. They could go anywhere and the waters just parted for her. But I don't know, but she had a wonderful time that night. The dress was uncomfortable. She didn't say a whole lot. If you ever, if you ever watch the clip, Hope does most of the talking. She'd made four films with Bob. She did a television special with him, meaning, meaning it was her show, Lucille Ball special. And she did, I don't know how many Bob Hope shows through the years. And they'd done radio together many times. So they, they were good. They, they were a partnership, a show business partnership. They'd done a lot of stuff together in show business. So she was happy to be with him. And it is the last time she was on television. Last time she was really seen in public. It's an amazing thing. I write about this in the Lucy book. I got a call the morning she died before it was on the air so that I wouldn't hear about it that way. And uh, someone told me this story who was there. They were driving on the 405 freeway in Los Angeles. The 405 freeway is one of the busiest, most traveled freeways in Los Angeles. 
and it's a parking lot during during drive time. During rush hour, you could probably walk where you're going faster. And people were driving, and this person was had the radio on and heard, you know, flash, Lucille Ball just died. And he slammed on his brakes and started to cry. It was an immediate reaction. He didn't think like, I'm going to do this. It just, he had to stop and cry. Five seconds, ten seconds, he's like, oh my goodness, I'm on the 405 freeway. I'm going to get killed. And he looked around, and in both directions, everyone was stopped crying. Because Lucy, not Lucille Ball, Lucy was no longer with us. That's how much she affected everybody. An entire freeway stopped and cried because she had passed. Uh, is there a better, more fitting tribute to her effect on us as a performer? The joy she brought, I don't know how many generations now, with her work, there was something about the character they created, the Lucy character, just touched everybody, which means that Lucille Ball, the artist, touched everybody. I think she'd be happy with that. Well, Jeffrey, Mark, I'm happy with having you back, and I want to thank you for sharing all that you did today. I learned so much. I was touched, I was moved, I was informed, and as always with you, I was entertained. And um, I really have much uh, admiration for your knowledge on the film industry. So I am truly honored to have someone like you uh, spend so much time with me and my listeners. Thank you. Well, you got me to choke up twice while I was talking. That's very rare for me. You know, I've been, I've been, someone asked me, how many times have you been interviewed? In 46 years, are you kidding me? I couldn't begin to count. But normally, I don't get emotional on the air. Uh, but bring up my late soulmate and bring up Miss Ball, I, I get teary because uh, just like Lucy was important to all of you listening, she was important to me as a kid and a young person. And uh, Lucille Ball was awfully nice to me. The person. And uh, if that chokes me up a little bit, that's okay. She deserves it. And if you mention my late spouse and that chokes me up, good. He deserves it. So uh, thank you for letting me share some of me with your listeners. My pleasure. Uh, it's, not easy. it's not easy to do, but I'm happy to do it. Well, I certainly hope you will uh, come back again and hopefully very soon, Jeffrey. As often as you invite me, Stephen. Thank you so much. We just couldn't get a hold of you. We ran out of the house. Nobody could find you. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> See, oh. And I got a wonderful present for you. You want to hear it? Hear it? I love Lucy.
see and she loves me we're as happy as two can be sometimes we quarrel but then <laughs> how we love making up again lucy kisses like no one can she's my missus and i'm her man and life is heaven you By the way, do you mind if I ask, uh, do you know Jeffrey Mark by chance? I do know Jeffrey. I see him. He comes to the museum quite often to all of our uh, events. <laughs> I, uh, Lucille Ball one, I bet. Uh, oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I've never sat down with him alone. I see. Uh, we've never done anything together, but uh, he always comes and he's just full of vim, vigor, and vitality. You well, know? he's a two-time guest. He he did one on Gail Russell. I did a biography special, and oh, wow. uh, because I didn't think there was anything out there remembering her on a podcast, and then he contributed to my remembering Michael Landon episode. And Chris oh, Hendry was also a guest, and Judith Chapman. So I owe J- Jeffrey a lot, and I wanted to mention. Oh, him. absolutely! If you talk to him, tell him hello. I will. Thank you so much. 